Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've just spent the last four sessions covering Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. A great throng of people from all over the place found their way to the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was. It was a great throng of people who were there to be healed from various diseases and physical ailments. Some of them were even there to be healed from demonic possession. And I think that's interesting how they were possessed on the one hand and yet still had some free will to get to Jesus to be healed. There's apparently various levels of severity when it comes to demonic possession, and we'll have plenty of chances to get into all that later. But the point is, Jesus is no longer finding people here and there. He's got hundreds of people around him at all times, sometimes thousands. And that was when Jesus finally appointed 12 of his disciples to be apostles. To be a disciple just means to be a student or a follower of Christ. But an apostle is something that Jesus specifically appoints. It's related to the coming kingdom on the earth. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus appointed 12 apostles. And he gave them supernatural power to do what he had been doing, healing, casting out demons, and so forth. And then, between the Sea of Galilee and the town of Capernaum, he began a sermon to this vast multitude of people from all over the place. But while they were there listening, Jesus specifically addressed it to his disciples. So if you're a follower of Christ, that sermon was addressed to you. Luke recorded an outline of it in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 49, while Matthew took the whole thing down verbatim because he knew shorthand, so he recorded all of it, and it spanned three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We spent one session on Luke's record of it, and then spent three sessions covering Matthew's record of it. And Jesus covered a lot of ground in that sermon. That's why it took us so long to get through it. But the primary focus lying in the background of that whole sermon was the coming kingdom of the Messiah. That's to be on the planet Earth. We don't think much about that, because we think of our future in heaven. And we certainly have a future in heaven, but sometimes we think about it so much that we tend to take scripture that's talking about the coming kingdom on the earth and apply it to the kingdom of God that's in heaven. And because of that, a lot of confusion on some of these passages crop up and cause all kinds of controversial debates and divisions. But all those debates and confusion goes away once you realize that the scripture talks of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God is heaven, and it's where the Father's throne is. It's where all of us go when we die. All of us that are saved, that is. Our citizenship there is a sealed deal. Nothing or no one can take that away from us. But once we get there, it's where the Father also gives out rewards for faithful works that we performed while we were still here on the earth. If the work was performed for him, then you get a reward. If it was performed to impress man, then we've already received our reward. But included with rewards is another category, and that's concerning what Jesus and Paul calls our inheritance. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Paul told us in the book of Romans that as adopted children into the family of God, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Well, Jesus has a kingdom in which his throne is on the planet earth. Now, that throne doesn't exist yet. That's why Jesus is presently on his father's throne in heaven. But this is where the distinction between two kingdoms spoken of in the scripture gets confused. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are not one and the same as most of us presume. It's from those presumptions that a lot of confusion and controversial doctrine comes from. Once you realize that those two titles refer to two separate kingdoms, then everything comes into focus. Heaven is the kingdom of God. It's where the Father's throne is. The kingdom of heaven is where the Son's throne will be. And that's to be on the earth. And we introduced all of that in our session for Matthew chapter 5, and then we got into it again when we got into Matthew chapter 7. I don't want to have to repeat myself over and over again about this, but just try to keep that distinction in mind. 
because we're going to continue to come across a lot of controversial passages of Scripture that to this day still cause more strife and division. But all of that controversy just evaporates into thin air once you can identify which kingdom is being talked about. If it uses the title Kingdom of God, it's talking about heaven, where the Father's throne is. If it uses the title Kingdom of Heaven, then it's talking about Jesus' future rule over the planet Earth. Keep that in mind, because we're going to see that title of Jesus' kingdom here again in a minute. Now, this next reported event is recorded by Matthew and Luke. Luke's record of this starts in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and Matthew's is in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 says that as Jesus went into Capernaum, a centurion came up to him, begging him and saying, Lord, my servant boy is lying at the house paralyzed and distressed with intense pains. A centurion was a Roman officer that was in command of around a hundred people. We call a hundred years a century. A Roman officer that was in command of a hundred men was called a centurion. Now, by reading Matthew's account of this, you kind of get the impression that this Roman centurion was the one who personally went up to Jesus. But investigative reporter Luke reports that the centurion sent messengers to represent him. So let's take a look at that. Luke chapter 7 verse 2 says the centurion had a bondservant who was held in honor and highly valued by him. So there was an emotional connection there. And he was sick and at the point of death. And when the centurion heard of Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to meet him requesting him to come and make his bondservant well. You know, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, but this centurion was a Roman Gentile. Both groups, Jews and Gentiles, they looked down on each other. But here, this guy, whoever he was, even though he was a Gentile, he recognized something special about this Jesus character. He'd been following the reports and so forth for whatever reason, and now there's a vital need that only Jesus can fix, if it can be fixed at all, right? But because of the cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles, to bridge the gap, this Roman centurion sends Jewish elders to meet him. Let's continue. Luke's report says that when they reached Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, He is worthy that you should do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he built us our synagogue at his own expense. Wow. So whoever this Roman centurion was, he went against the grain of normal race relations. He didn't look down on the Jews, but respected them and even built for them their synagogue. The particular Jews who were making this request, their synagogue. That's quite a big favor. So he wasn't just being politically correct. He had a passion for the Jews and had gained their respect. But Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, so he offers him the respect that he feels is due to him, and he sends to meet him Jewish elders. You know, don't do this because I'm a Roman centurion. This isn't an order. This is a request. This is a humble plea. And the Jewish elders that he sent to Jesus, they thought they had to make the case to him to do this favor. Yeah, he's a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion, but this guy's different. He's worthy. He loves our nation. He built for us our synagogue. It says, when they reached Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, He is worthy that you should do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he built us our synagogue at his own expense. And Jesus went with him, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, whoa, Lord! He called him Lord. What's going on here? The centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not sufficiently worthy to have you come under my roof. Neither did I consider myself worthy to come to you. But just speak a word, and my servant boy will be healed. Wow. Just speak a word, and my servant boy will be healed, for I also am a man daily subject to authority, with soldiers underneath me. 
And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my bondservant, do this, and he does it. Folks, this is incredible. Matthew's record says the centurion replied to him, Lord, I am not worthy or fit to have you come under my roof. But only speak the word, and my servant boy will be cured. For I also am a man subject to authority, with soldiers subject to me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Key word there in all of that, folks, is where the centurion says, I also have authority. He's proclaiming to Jesus that he understands that Jesus has authority over soldiers. Not the kind of soldiers that the centurion is used to commanding, but the kind of soldiers that obey the word of the Lord when he commands them. Angels. Or he might even be going further than that. He told Jesus, just speak the word and it will be done. Did this Gentile Roman centurion have a copy of Genesis? Let there be light, and it was so. That's command over and beyond the command of angels. That's the command over the laws of physics. Compare this scenario to the one that happened some time ago, recorded in John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54, where a nobleman had a similar problem. He was a royal official whose son was also at the point of death, and he personally made the trip to Jesus. He ran all the way to him, screaming and begging him to physically come over to where his son was to heal him, remember? He said, please come at once before it's too late. Jesus was disappointed in that and saw it as a lack of faith because if he had known who he was, then he wouldn't have begged him to physically get over there. Somebody like Moses or Elijah might have had to do that, but not Jesus. He was God himself in human flesh. Jesus was disgruntled and said, go your way, your son lives. But here in this scenario, the exact opposite happens. This centurion didn't go himself. He sent messengers and he stayed behind to look after his servant who he cared for. He sent a message of respect and honor. And then once he received word that he was coming, he sent friends to meet him on his way and called him Lord. And told him, Lord, I am not worthy or fit to have you come under my roof. And I didn't feel worthy to come to you. But only speak the word and my servant boy will be cured. For I also am a man subject to authority with soldiers subject to me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Both Matthew and Luke record Jesus' response to this and say that when he heard this, he marveled at him. And then he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I tell you, I have not found so much faith as this with anyone even in Israel. I tell you truly, not even in all Israel have I found such great faith as this. And then Jesus makes a follow-up statement that only Matthew records. He said, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be driven out into the darkness outside where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Now verse 12 there is a famous verse because it's been misunderstood and twisted by various religious groups. The King James rendering is what sounds the most familiar to us. It says, The children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It has always been assumed without any investigation that the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth is hell. The gnashing of teeth part has even been used in several horror films from the 1980s, the Hellraiser series. They had a demon character that had constant gnashing teeth. Religious activist groups have made church plays and online videos about hell with people crying and gnashing their teeth from the pain. I don't know what the deal is, something about the pain and suffering of hell that really fascinates some religious groups. You'd think they'd be more interested in their future. 
But let's look at this and see what it's really saying here. Because this is not talking about hell. Jesus is making this statement in connection with what's just happened here. He just received a sign of faith that outweighs all of the other signs of faith that he's seen so far in all of Israel. But it's coming from a Roman Gentile. He's not biologically heir to the coming kingdom. He's not Jewish. He's just a Gentile. And yet he's showing more faith and has more confidence in who Jesus really is than anyone else he's seen so far in all of Israel. So Jesus remarks to this phenomenon. And then continuing from the theme he started at the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's the future rule of Jesus Christ on the planet Earth. After the Antichrist has been defeated and the curse has been removed from the planet, Jesus is going to be ruling the planet Earth. And there's going to be feasts, parties, banquets. And Jesus is specifically referring to the first one. He says people from all over the place are going to come to join in on this feast. They're going to sit down, not stand, not bow, but kicking back, relaxing. They're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those names belong to pillars of the kingdom. It all started with a promise to Abraham. Isaac was Abraham's son. Jacob was Isaac's son. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And it's the children of Israel who make up the nation of Israel, the Jewish race. The bloodline of God's prophetic kingdom. When God himself spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When you mentioned those guys, you knew you weren't talking about Amun-Ra or the Nile God. This was the Hebrew God, the God that is God, the God of Genesis, the I am that I am, the only God. Jesus is talking about that awesome time period on the planet Earth when Jesus is physically going to be sitting on David's throne and ruling from it. All of the barriers between what we would call the physical and the spiritual will no longer exist because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be there. They're going to be walking around on the Earth, sitting down at tables and eating food at feast time, banquets, parties. It's going to be awesome. But then Jesus lowers a bomb on us with the following statement. He says, many will come from the east and the west and will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be driven into the darkness outside where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. So instead of making assumptions like most people do, let's look at this. Let's take it apart and see what it really says. First off, the time period is the future when Jesus rules over the planet Earth. We've established that. The location is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are sitting down to feast and visit. Jesus says, many will come from the east and the west and will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But who are the many? That word many covers a lot of ground. There's no stipulation as to who that's talking about. Obviously, they have to be saved, but that's not confined to Jew or Gentile. That covers everybody. Many. But then Jesus says, while many will be coming to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, the sons of the kingdom. Who are the sons of the kingdom? Sons applies to a biological, genealogical tie. In other words, they're literally sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're Hebrew. They're Jews. Jesus says, while many will be coming to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of the kingdom will be driven into the outer darkness. That's the King James Version, but the literal translation from the Greek says that they'll be driven into the darkness that's outside. Outside of what? Outside of where the banquet is. They're not being thrown into hell. They're just being excluded from the banquet. They're not excluded from salvation. 
But at this feast, this banquet, when many come from the east and the west, from all over the earth, they're coming to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who else is there? Jesus. He's the king. He's saying, just because you have a biological blood tie to the kingdom doesn't mean you're going to be included in this special event. Many will be included, but others will not be because of their faith. Now, when Jesus says the sons of the kingdom will be driven out, is he saying the entire Jewish race is going to be excluded? No, of course not. Abraham's there. Isaac's there. Jacob's there. So will the apostles, Peter, Matthew, John, James, Paul, and any Jew who has ever lived who accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But it's not because they're Jewish that they're there. It's because of their faith. And Jesus is pointing out that for whatever reason, on a grand scale, not completely true individually, but on a grand scale, the sons of the kingdom didn't and haven't recognized who Jesus is. But this Roman Gentile did. He called him Lord. He said he wasn't worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. He knew who he was. And then asked, if you would, sir, just say the word and my servant will be healed. I know who you are. And Jesus is saying, now this is what I'm talking about. Everybody else is seeking signs and wonders. They see Jesus do all kinds of miracles. They get excited, but the smallest amount of time passes, and they don't believe anything. Meanwhile, you've got this Roman Gentile who hasn't seen anything but only heard reports. And without a doubt, he knows exactly who Jesus is. He's the Lord. He's the one who said, let there be light, and it was so. So Jesus says, many Jews and Gentiles and everything in between will be coming to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But those who have a biological tie to the kingdom but showed no faith are going to be driven outside from where the table is, where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Now let's talk about that little phrase for a minute. People by default associate that phrase with suffering that takes place in hell. Simply because if you're not in hell, then why would there be any weeping or gnashing of teeth? I thought the Bible said in heaven, whether you're talking about the domain of the Father's throne or the domain of the Son's throne on the earth, I thought the Bible said that there would be no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and so on and so forth, right? Well, that's true. But right at first, there will be tears. Because the Bible tells us that it's Jesus himself who wipes away those tears. Remember? It says he will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. After that, then there will be no more sorrow. Then there will be no more tears. But why are there tears there to begin with? It's always been my view that those tears are equivalent to the tears of a little child who just woke up from a nightmare. You know, and loving parents come in to wipe away the tears. It's okay. It's all over now. But there might be something more to this. Is it because they're turned away that they weep and gnash their teeth? Because of regret and disappointment in themselves? Because for 2,000 years, they didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. If that's the case, then it's also true that those tears will be wiped away by Jesus himself. Is this why that statement of Jesus's is only recorded by Matthew? Because his target audience was to the Jew. Luke mentioned the scenario that led up to that statement, but didn't include it. Because his target audience was to the Greek Jesus' statement was a specific rebuke because of their faith to those who are sons of the kingdom. They're Jews. After seeing this incredible faith from a Roman Gentile that outweighs all the faith he's seen so far in all of Israel, he tells them, I have not found so much faith as this with anyone even in Israel. For truly I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be driven out into the darkness outside where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Because for 2,000 years, they didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. 
That's what this is all about. It's not about hell. It's not about Christians losing their salvation. It's about Jesus remembering. And it's kind of strange to use the word remember about an event that's still future. But before Jesus became human, he was outside time. And now, in the flesh, he remembers the coming future. A Jewish kingdom ruled by a Jew with Jewish patriarchs. But the opening celebration, the big feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the sons of the kingdom who will be turned away. Of course, God will wipe away their tears, but they don't get to be a part of this opening celebration because they didn't have the faith that others do who got to be a part of the celebration. Jesus knows that and is reminded of it with this scenario with the Roman centurion. He's thinking, here's the first sign of the problem of Israel's faith. Because Jesus has been walking from town to town to town all over Israel, preaching in synagogues, being run out by Pharisees, being tackled on by people begging for miracles. Whole towns see his miracles and don't have faith. His hometown of Nazareth tried to push him off a cliff. But then, here's this Roman Gentile who didn't attend the Sermon on the Mount, who hasn't been to a single sermon that he preached in any synagogue, who hasn't seen one single miracle. And yet, he gets it. Then to the centurion, or the centurion's messengers, Jesus said, Tell him it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant boy was restored to health at that very moment. Luke reports that when the messengers who had been sent returned to the house, they found the bondservant who had been ill quite well again. The King James poetically puts it, They that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. One more thing about this being driven into the darkness that's outside. Where do we, as Gentile Christians, fit into all of this? Is there anything in this for us? The easy answer is no, because we're not Jews. That's the quick and easy answer. But that might not be the right answer. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 17, tells us that we are adopted sons of the Father. And if we're his children, then we're his heirs also. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What do children of kings inherit, folks? They inherit kingdoms. But inheritances can be blown. You can't forfeit your adoption, but you can forfeit your inheritance. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 17 tells us we're joint heirs of Christ if, if we suffer with him so that we may be glorified together with him. So our inheritance is conditional. If you want to study that a little more, listen to our sessions on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, specifically Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 7. Now, folks, Jesus is about to turn things up a notch. What do I mean by that? Well, God knows how to make an impression. He knows how to woo and court his bride. Now, the world gets to see all of this, and they're impressed by it, but it's really for his bride. And you can find examples of this all throughout the Bible. The scenario between Moses and Ramses. If you remember, God could have started off with the parting of the Red Sea, but he saved that for last. He started off small. A shepherd's staff turned into a serpent. Clap, clap, clap. But then God turns the river Nile into blood. Then frozen hail falls from a clear sky and then burns on the ground. Then it's dark for three days. And then finally, as a big finish, he parts the Red Seas and then destroys the most powerful army on the planet, Pharaoh's army. Same thing's going to happen during the Great Tribulation between God and the Antichrist. Things will start off small, then it'll get serious, and then finally, whoa, holy smokes. Now, concerning Jesus, we already know what the climax will be, right? But it all started with a secret little miracle at a wedding feast in the town of Cana, recorded only by John. He turned water into wine. And only Mary, the first few disciples, and the servants that were there knew what happened. So it was a secret. 
And the miracle itself, turning water into wine, is significant for its symbolism, but as a miracle itself, it's kind of neat, but so what? Right? But then people who are sick are instantly made well. Now, that's impressive. Then he cures people who are sick of diseases that are terminal. Now, that's really impressive. Then he cures people who have terminal diseases with just a word from a distance. Now we're getting really impressive, right? God grins and says, oh yeah, watch this. Then he restores limbs from people who are crippled. Only the Creator could do that. That's something you literally see. Arms that aren't there or shriveled up suddenly appear or stretch out as though they were always there. Now that's impressive. But then he heals the demon-possessed. The demons themselves shriek in horror. He silences them and commands them to come out instantly. And men who were possessed and incurable are suddenly themselves again. Now we're getting serious. That becomes so impressive that it freaks people out, right? This is kind of stuff he's been doing from town to town as he's been teaching in synagogues and so forth. But Jesus is about to show us that he's only been traveling in second gear. He's about to shift it into third. Watch this. This reported event is recorded by investigative reporter Luke in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus went into a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great throng accompanied him. Just as he drew near the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large gathering from the town was accompanying her. So this is a funeral. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Don't cry. And he went forward and touched the funeral bier. That was the formal cot or stretcher that carried the dead. They didn't use a coffin like we do today. They carried them formally on a stretcher wrapped in formal burial clothes. Jesus went forward and touched the funeral bier, and the pallbearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the man who was dead sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And then profound and reverential fear seized everyone. And they began to recognize God and praise and give thanks, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning Jesus spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the country round about. Jesus turned it up a notch. He's shown command over the laws of physics before, with the turning of water into wine, with healing sicknesses, with restoring limbs. But in a huge way here, Jesus has authority over the laws of death itself. What's really weird is that when Jesus said to this dead corpse, Young man, I say to you, arise. Since he was dead, how did he hear Jesus' command? Jesus didn't touch his body to bring life back to it and then say, Arise. He spoke to the young man himself. And what's really weird is that he heard him. Which proves even though his physical body was dead, he was alive somewhere. Jesus wasn't speaking to his hardware. He was speaking directly to his software. It wasn't in the body anymore. It had been uploaded to paradise. But Jesus spoke directly to the software. You, young man, arise. And he heard him and obeyed. Only the hardware dies. The software lives on forever. Now this next report gives us an update on John the Baptist. He's still in prison. And the following event is recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 19, and Luke in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. The disciples of John the Baptist sent word to him in prison of all the things that were going on, all the activities of Christ. So then John sent two of his disciples back to get a message to Jesus, basically asking him a question. 
And that question being, are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? Wow. As we read through the Gospel accounts, we get to be excited as we see these events unfold. But John, he's been sitting in prison all this time, staring at the walls. So doubt has been building up. So the two disciples made their way to Jesus, and then they asked him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we keep on expecting a different one? Luke reports that in that very hour, Jesus was healing many people of sicknesses and distressing bodily plagues and evil spirits, and to many who were blind, he gave sight. So he replied to them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense in me, and who is not hurt or resentful or annoyed, and finds no cause for stumbling through me, and is not hindered from seeing the truth. So John's messengers leave to go back to John with this message, and then Jesus takes this opportunity to speak to the crowds about John, because they remember he was the one who got all of this started. He was the one who went out into the wilderness to announce the coming of the Messiah. He was famous first, and everybody went out to see him, and he baptized people there in the Jordan River. But that was some time ago, so Jesus takes this opportunity to teach the crowds some doctrine by reflecting back on what happened there. Both Matthew and Luke report that after the messengers of John had departed, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John and said, What did you go out into the desert to gaze upon? A reed shaken and swayed by the wind? What did you go out to see then? A man clothed in soft garments? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the houses of kings. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one superior to a prophet... This is the one of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who shall make ready your way before you. Jesus is quoting the prophecy recorded in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The last two chapters of Malachi have the prophecies of both comings of the Lord, both the first and the second coming. Chapter 3 focuses on Jesus' first coming, where he comes to refine the priesthood. That's why throughout Jesus' entire mission, it's the Pharisees who constantly wind up being the target of Jesus' arguments and accusations, as they argue and accuse him. But Malachi chapter 4 focuses on Jesus' second coming, when he comes to take over the planet Earth and destroy the wicked. The prophecy of chapter 4 was more exciting because of what the Messiah is prophesied to do in chapter 4. So that's what everyone was expecting and waiting for. And the sign of that second coming is foreshadowed by God sending the prophet Elijah. So when John the Baptist showed up, people actually asked him if he was Elijah. And he told them no, that he was the prophet foretold in Malachi chapter 3, not Malachi chapter 4. This is the first coming, not the second coming. But even though John the Baptist was the prophet foretold in Malachi chapter 3, Jesus is fixing to put an interesting little twist on all of this. Let's keep reading. Jesus just asked the crowd, What did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one superior to a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who shall make ready your way before you. That's the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. Now what Jesus says right after that is split in half by Matthew and Luke. Luke only reports one half of it, while Matthew reports the other half. And the reason why they did this was because of their targeted audience. Luke was reporting to Greek readers, while Matthew was reporting to Jewish readers. Jesus said, according to Luke, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. But he that is inferior in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now there's a riddle for you, folks. Sounds like double talk. Don't forget the kingdom of God is the title for the domain under the Father's throne. That's heaven. And Jesus said, among those born of women, that covers everybody, the entire human race, right? Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. 
So Jesus is saying, out of the entire human race that has ever lived, no one is greater than John the Baptist. But then Jesus says, but he that is inferior to John in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How is that possible? If John's the greatest among the entire human race on the planet Earth, how can anyone who's inferior to John on the planet Earth be superior to him in heaven? What Jesus is alluding to here is the bride of Christ, the church, those who are saved, not by keeping the law, but by believing in the one whom God sent to fulfill the law on their behalf and then become a sacrifice for their sins. We 21st century New Testament Christians take that for granted. We know by believing in the one whom God sent and accepting his work on the cross, we're reborn in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is permanently sealed within us. Those are basics for us. We take that for granted. But for 4,000 years, that's not the way it was. The Holy Spirit was something that came and went. It visited only one person at a time. And even then, it was only temporary. It was with Moses. Then it was with Joshua. Later, he was with David. But David in the Psalms prayed, Please take not your Holy Spirit from me. It wasn't sealed. Were they saved? Yes, of course they were saved. By faith were they saved. That concept is not new. It's always been that way. But their faith was in something that was to come. It hadn't happened yet. Everyone who's been saved since the cross are saved by faith in something that's already happened. And we could spend a whole lot of time on this subject because it's another one of those subjects that's the cause of a lot of debate and controversy. There's a heretical doctrine out there called replacement theology, and that theology is 100% satanic. That doctrine teaches that the church replaces Israel, and that doctrine is the source of anti-Semitism throughout the centuries in the name of Christianity. But the church does not replace Israel. It's a different and separate classification of saints. Abraham was saved by faith, Isaac was saved by faith, Jacob was saved by faith, and all of the Old Testament believers were saved by faith. But they were saved by faith during a period known as the era of the law and the prophets. Jesus is about to say here in a minute that John the Baptist is the closing of that era. So let's keep reading. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. But he that is inferior in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people who heard him, even the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God and calling them to repentance and being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers of the Mosaic law annulled and rejected and brought to nothing God's purpose concerning themselves by refusing and not being baptized by John. And then Jesus said, according to Matthew, Truly I tell you, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus has switched gears and is now talking about the coming messianic kingdom to be on the earth. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until the present time, the kingdom of heaven has endured violent assault, and violent men seize it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied up until John. And if you are willing to receive and accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come before the kingdom. Whoa! Jesus just put a twist on this. Earlier, he pointed out accurately that John was the prophet who was prophesied in Malachi chapter 3. But then right here, Jesus said he could have been the one prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 if you had been willing to receive it. In other words, this is my first coming, but it could have been my second one if you had welcomed it. See, Jesus is the king of that prophesied kingdom to be set up on the earth. But Israel didn't accept it, nationally and politically, I mean. Individually, some of them had. But Israel's political leadership and Israel's religious leadership wouldn't have it. 
Of course, God being outside time knew that's the way it would wind up. That's why there's two comings prophesied and not just one. And you could take this and launch into the whole predestination versus free will debate. Did Israel have free will? Of course they did, because Jesus right here is saying, my trip here could have been my only trip. I could have straightened everything out right here. But Israel's political and religious leadership wouldn't have it. And God, being outside time, knowing that's the way it would be, prophesied two comings. One to take away the sin of the world, and then another one to take back the world itself. And when that happens, a lot of people don't know this, but when that happens, it's because Israel finally accepts Jesus as their Messiah. So God isn't finished with Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. Israel has a destiny. But it's postponed until Israel nationally recognizes Jesus as their Messiah. And they will. Then Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him listen and let him consider and perceive and comprehend by hearing. And then from here on out, both Matthew and Luke's records are identical again. And I find this little segment really fascinating because it's Jesus going into a rant, mocking the religious leadership's accusations against him since he first started his ministry. This is funny. Because the Pharisees complained that Jesus healed on the Sabbath days. Others complained that he didn't fast like others were doing. Jesus wouldn't cram himself into this little box that the religious leaders had created. And Jesus goes into a little rant about it here. He says, To what shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like little children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another and saying, We piped to you playing the wedding, and you didn't dance. We sang dirges and wailed playing the funeral, and you didn't mourn or cry. John the Baptist came neither drinking wine or eating bread, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes and does eat and drink with others, and they say, Behold, a man who is a glutton and a wine drinker, a friend of tax collectors and notorious sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. Wow. And then here, Jesus' rant continues, but only got recorded by Matthew. Luke had had enough, evidently. But Matthew keeps recording. Chapter 11, verse 20. It says, Then he began to censure and reproach the cities in which most of his mighty works had been performed, because they did not repent, and their hearts were not changed. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would long ago have repented in sackcloth and ashes, and their hearts would have been changed. I tell you further, it shall be more endurable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Folks, what's all that about? He's saying that the degree of punishment depends on how much truth was denied. The more truth you reject, the worse the punishment. Now, if you reject any truth, period, then you've got nothing to provide you with a way of escape from judgment. You accept the truth, you escape judgment. It doesn't make any difference how much truth you accept. You accept any amount of truth, you escape judgment. But the more truth you reject, the worse the punishment. Tyre and Sidon are talked about all throughout the Old Testament as being destined for some serious judgment. They were known to the biblically literate of their impending doom. But Jesus is saying, hey, Chorazin, Bethsaida, you're going to get worse. Because if the mighty works that were done in your communities had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. And it's interesting to note that today, Chorazin and Bethsaida no longer exist. They're gone. Let's keep moving. Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, are you to be lifted up to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades, the region of the dead. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have continued until today. But I tell you, it shall be more endurable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Good grief. At that time, Jesus began to say, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to babies. 
Yes, Father, such was your gracious will and good pleasure. All things have been entrusted and delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son deliberately wills to make him known. Wow. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and overburdened, and I will cause you to rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle, meek, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There's that famous verse. What is a yoke, folks? A yoke is the old term for the device that was put on horses to be driven by their masters. You sat up on the wagon seat. You held the reins, which were connected to the yoke, which connected the horses to the wagon. Jesus is saying, you, take on my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of us, whether we know it or not, we all carry a yoke. If it's any yoke other than the Lord's yoke, it's a difficult yoke and a heavy burden. Whether it's your career, finances, a self-image, relationships, peace of mind, all those yokes are difficult and burdensome. The world's yoke is difficult and a burden. And no matter which way you go, it's going to pull the other direction. But Jesus' yoke is easy, and his burden is light. It doesn't seem easy and light when you put on his yoke and constantly try to fight him. But when you just submit and surrender, it is easy and light. We're going to stop right there and let all of that sink in. And we'll continue next week right where we left off. Until next week, folks, we're out of here. Take care.